I'm Jack Cohen, the Associate Rabbi at Hampstead Shul, and this is Community. In this podcast, I get to speak to some extraordinary people from the Jewish community about themselves, about religion, about everything else. This is a DK production, so sit back, turn up the volume, and enjoy. In this episode, we're going to meet Mark Norm. Mark has had a very varied career. He's been in acting and in journalism, but his niche and where he's really made a name for himself is in the marketing and advertising world. He was one of the founders and ran as the CEO, a company which won five Agency of the Year awards. Having moved on from there, he's now heading up a company which represents Hilton, Amazon, major players in the commercial world. So that's really something that he has a massive expertise in which we're going to delve into. In his spare time, amongst being a Krav Maga instructor, he's also the chair of JW3. So he's got very unique perspectives, which we are going to draw on. The podcast is going to start. We're going to talk about how do you balance time when you have many important obligations, creative obligations that fall on your shoulders in many different areas. How do you manage your time? We talk about flexible working hours and rituals, and also perhaps where we as a society have got the focus wrong in terms of where time investment matters and the importance of downtime. We then talk about how one becomes successful, what the journey of fulfilling one's potential might look like, and what are the practical steps some of the younger people can be taking right now to making their inroads on that path. And along with some fascinating tips, we also talk about what he as an employer is going to be looking for in employees. We move then from there to the Jewish section. We talk about what spoke to him about JW3, why he became the chairman, what the vision for JW3 is. This was recorded during COVID, so at the time it was closed creating its own unique challenges and what the future for JW3 is before speaking about his own religious journey, the role of religion in his life. And especially interestingly, as he's going to mention the, the space of religion, given the backdrop that his mother was a Holocaust survivor who came to the conclusion that God did not exist. It's a fascinating episode. I hope you enjoy. So, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's definitely our privilege. There's way too much to cram in because you've just done so many different things, but I'll do my best to draw the big picture here. So the first question I wanted to ask was about the flexible working, and I wanted to understand how on earth you were able to put an hour aside to speak to us. So the flexible working, um, about two years ago-ish, I decided in the job I was doing at the time that there was lots more I wanted to do, including chair JW3. I was lucky enough to be invited, but I needed to create the time for it. I'm, I'm big on rituals um, uh, and including ritualizing time and ritualizing commitment. And I realized that I wouldn't be able to do these new things unless I created a ritual around it. And so um, I moved to a, an official four-day week to allow myself to spend um, most of Friday doing that. Um, uh, and it, it worked really well. Um, I, a lot of the time in the uh, in the first couple of years, it was dedicated to JW3. And then 
when that calmed down a little bit, I managed to diversify and do some other things. Um, and I managed to find an hour on a Sunday for you, Jack, because I said I would. Okay, fair enough. So I want to go in on the rituals. What does a day in the life, and you could choose any one of the four days or the fifth day or the weekends, what does a day in the life look like? What are the rituals? Well, a working a working day in the life of um, during COVID is obviously different to a working day in the life of during another time. But I walk uh, every morning um, on Hampstead Heath with a very large dog, um, often with my wife, sometimes with friends, sometimes with colleagues. Um, and I find just that ability to breathe fresh air and connect with nature is really important for my mental health. That takes about 90 minutes to do a circuit uh, of the Heath. And by the time I'm back and sitting at my desk with a coffee, um, I feel you know able to start the day. I then have a series of meetings. We've got an office in Australia, so sometimes the first meeting of the day is even earlier than that before I walk um, with Australia. We have an office in LA at the other end of the spectrum, and so sometimes the day can go on quite long, but try and make a bit of, of time at lunchtime um, to have a break, to have something to eat, to breathe, to speak to my wife, see my kids if they're around. Um, uh, and the day is generally full of Zooms and phone calls if I can get off Zoom. And now and again, I'll put time like an appointment in my diary that can't be booked. Um, sometimes I give them funny names just to, just to make sure that I can get on with thinking, get, get on with what an author, Cal Newport, once referred to as deep work. And that carries on until um, just before it's sort of time to eat in the evening where I, I am, am um, very disciplined about doing exercise. I do that six days a week and then I'll eat, spend time with my family. And if I have to, I'll do a bit more work after that, maybe if there's calls you know, with the States or something, but I'll, I'll try and avoid working too late into the evening, try and have a kind of firm cutoff point where I put the phone away and I read books or watch a bit of TV or I chat with my family. So that's typically what a, what a day in the life looks like. Okay, cool. So you speak occasionally, I have found, about this distinction between input and output yeah and that we need to change our focus mm. can you elaborate on that yeah happily so i mean it has a very particular significance within the advertising industry jack but i, I think it probably there's probably a message for us all in it the advertising industry when i was still a kid was was remuneration worked largely than if you were a big advertiser and you spent x million pounds on uh, on your media um, on buying your, your airtime or your posters or your press ads, a proportion of that would go to the agency in fees, a commission. That's how they would pay for their, their, uh, their work, their creative work and their production. And that shifted by the time I was into the industry where media and creative were separated and advertising agencies, creative agencies were paid generally by the hour instead, a bit more like accountants, if you like, or lawyers. It had its virtues and it's definitely got its downsides. Um, because if you're commissioning an idea, I'll give you a made-up example, um, do you know Nike's um, strap line or the line for which they're most famous? Often Grace's T-shirts. Just do it. Exactly. So if you were the Nike client commissioning that from your advertising agency, would you want to pay per word? In which case you'd expect a very low price. It's just the three words. Um, and and if they charged you more, maybe they thought that they should. it should be a longer sentence. It wouldn't necessarily be a better one. So charging by the word, though, that's a bit dark. But creativity often doesn't work on a kind of hourly basis either. Sometimes the best ideas I think we all have are when we stop thinking about something. And it's, it's well documented that that's the point where the unconscious takes over. So in a sense, it was the least worst system that they'd invented by then. But it wasn't much good anyway. And, and if you are charged by the hour, then surely it's an incentive for the agencies to 
drag it out as long as they possibly can. So it's inadequate in all sorts of ways. Because really what you want to be paying for as a client are the outputs, surely, which is you want to be paying for the quality of those three words, just do it, or whatever the equivalent is. And perhaps there's even something better that you should be paying for. You should be paying for, paying for the outcome or the impact, which is how successful was it? I could come up with three terrible words that have no impact whatsoever, or three words that you know you use as a brand forever and ever and ever. But I think I think that there's potentially you know there's sort of a metaphor there for life as well, which is should it be about the number of hours you put in at your desk? Should it be about counting the inputs, or should we measure our ourselves by the impact that we have on other people, by the, the impression that we create, by the connections that we make, by the difference that we make? Um, you know, should we judge a rabbi by how many? Um, um, hours they spend uh, uh, at their desk or by how many words they speak in a sermon or by how they move people and connect with people. And I guess that would be the analogy, although I'm not proposing any of those methods of remuneration for a rabbi. It's bits outside of my expertise. Talk about what some of the things that you mentioned underneath is that you need to, you've needed to make time um, to make sure that things are moving in the right direction. You have a much more of a, a, it seems a, a role of, being on top of other people and, and guiding the direction of in all different areas that you're involved in. And you also spoke about how you needed to make sure you had time uh, to be creative in, in the downtime there. And I guess to make that impact that you were just uh, talking about rather than just putting in the hours. So as you work your way up the different rungs, how much room is there for creativity in such a creative industry and is the nature of that creativity different? How much uh, is the nature of the creativity different as you move through the various levels, yeah. if you like? Um, I, mean, I guess to a large extent, it depends on the job that you do. In a very strict sense within the creative industries, there are people whose jobs are creatives. Uh, when they get very senior, they're called creative directors. And all they do, in theory, is think great thoughts all day. In fact, the reality is not. They've got to do meetings and stuff. So if you're a creative, for sure. But actually, I think we can all, we're all capable of being creative. If by creative, we mean capable of innovating, capable of thinking differently about anything we do. Um, even if you work in a kind of a, perhaps a more mechanical um, uh, area of the business with less latitude to innovate, we can all think about how we communicate with each other or how we collaborate. Um, uh, and that requires time. For sure, it requires time. And I, I would argue that if you're in a leadership position, your job is to counsel people and to advise them and to support them um, from whichever direction. Sometimes it's from underneath, sometimes it's from the side, sometimes it's from you know, higher up the organization. But if you're going to do that well, you have to have presence of mind. You have to be there for them. You can't have a mind that's busy, of 50, busy with 50,000 other thoughts because only then can you truly listen, can you truly hear them, can you truly maybe make some lateral connections in your own mind and think, well, how's this similar to situations that I've encountered before or what do I know from the kind of, from the books, from the textbooks, from the sources uh, about how this might how how this might play out and how I could help? I would argue that, in the broadest sense, of the word is creativity. That's making connections in your mind. That's not, by the way, it's it's well observed within advertising. There are very few new ideas, but actually, what creators do is they make connections between existing ideas. They take a thing, but they turn it into a thing that's a bit like a thing from a different thing, um, and they're adapting ideas. And so it is. I think it is with ideas generally. It could be a, a, a phrase or a thought or a theory and then you connect it to a, a new domain. And for that, you need some clarity of mind. I mean, I definitely am, feel that I'm new to this. I'm new to work, but I'm also, you know, in, in the rabbinic job, 
at we obviously there is an hour um you get paid by the hour and I'm always thinking you know am I using am I living up to the hours that I'm expected to be doing am I staying busy the whole time mm. and a lot of the most useful things actually happen in very short bursts of time and so then it just kind of becomes this guilty thing of am I using the rest of the time effectively and it can become just spinning around on a hamster wheel so it's reassuring to know that sometimes you know maybe chilling out and thinking bigger and taking a breather long term is actually the right thing to be doing and it turns on that word of effectiveness which you use twice in that in that in that uh, uh in the thought that you just shared because how do you measure effectiveness it's a very difficult thing to measure but i think it's the sort of broader philosophical point that's worth reflecting on which is you know how do i know i'm making a difference in any job rabbi or or ad man or ad woman um, you know, you're, you're, you're there to make an impact, to make a difference. They put KPIs in, in rabbinic jobs now. So they really? Wow. That's what the United Synagogue are up to these wow. days. Wow, there you go. So it's, uh, it's interesting and obviously different types of rabbis will have different types of KPIs. But yes, everyone is monitoring and making sure that they're getting, you know, bang for their buck, I guess. Indeed, indeed. So speaking of effectiveness however you measure that or or success or something like that what would you say would be the key to your journey how you continue to find yourself in new areas and innovating effectively and successfully what are the key things that motivate you and what do we need to be doing to make sure we can look back in a a few years and and say that we did not waste our time so it's it's a it's a great question and one that i've been thinking about in the context of advising my own sons um first of all even with the sort of potted history that you offered they're clearly that's the story of someone who's very confused who really does not have a clue as to what it is they want to do they want to be an actor no they want to be a journalist no they want to be in advertising not quite sure no they want to be a crab mcgo instructor run a cultural center who knows i'll answer the first part of the question first um what do i think the essential components are other than a bit of muzzle um uh tons of curiosity tons and tons of curiosity always wanting to understand why and how and what and of course tons of drive a desire to want to improve a desire to want to try and a desire to try you know to make it work and i think what what that kind of adds up to is a uh, a learning mindset um, there's a fashionable phrase for it now it's called a growth mindset the advice to someone um in the kind of the next generation uh, setting out on their career, trying to figure out what's what is, of course, expose yourself to as many different uh, experiences as you can and do internships and work experiences and speak to your parents, friends, or if you're, if, 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 uh, you know, not everyone has, uh, um, friends who have parents who are well-connected in professional industry, in which case, you know, speak to people at school and university, read as widely as you can, try and get as much exposure to different experiences as you can, and then try a few things without putting yourself under pressure that it's going to be the one, this is going to be the life, the journey, the vocation. Who knows if you're going to be any good at it? I think I was a distinctly average actor. Um, I think I was I was better at radio than I was at TV, as someone once said to me. I had a great face for radio, um, um, uh, but even then, I think I was an okay actor. But I'd, how did I know before trying? You know, I had to give it a go. By the time I got to university, I'd got it out of my system. Wanted to try something else. I was lucky to be in the company of some incredible journalists who are now sort of well-known columnists and editors. And I don't think I necessarily shaped up to that, but it was worth going through the experience because I learned how to write, and that then took me on to the next thing. So these are sort of little, little, little journeys uh, along the way. Um, but but the key thing there, I think, is to expose yourself to as many different environments as you can. Test yourself, and always, always learn. 
and 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 be hungry for feedback. A lot of people are nervous about feedback, but I take a lot of um, inspiration from from the domain of sports. Uh, not that I'm necessarily gifted at it, but I've read a fair amount around sports psychology. I'm doing a, some work at the moment with a sports psychologist. And, you know, you can have two gifted athletes in whatever domain, both work hard, and the difference is sometimes a millisecond. And it seems to be, I think, fairly well understood now across all sports domains. The best sports people are the ones that learn, constantly seeking to refine their technique, constantly seeking to draw from, you know, the best thinking in nutrition, the best thinking in aerodynamics, the best thinking in teamwork to try and just get that extra incremental difference. Now, you know, in a sense, that's the most pronounced, isn't it? So it's competitive. There's a winner, there's a loser. Uh, hopefully, it's slightly more uh, pronounced, uh, dramatic than the lives that we all have to live every day, where hopefully we're not all winning or losing at every moment. That would be exhausting. But certainly there, there, there is an analogy, I think, from which we can learn, which is by constantly striving to understand and to improve and to learn, which, of course, um, given the context of this conversation, I think it's a very Jewish thing. Um, I think that probably explains why people brought up in that culture, you know, have got a habit often, not always, um, of, of doing well. It's funny because when they were both at United, I think the idea was that Nani was actually more talented than Cristiano Ronaldo. But obviously Cristiano Ronaldo worked and trained and honed to a much greater degree. And uh, you can see the difference now, no disrespect to Nani. You absolutely can. And there are lots of stories of him and many other players, I'm sure we've all read about, about how they stayed late after training and they did another half an hour on their own of doing the free kicks or whatever it is they were doing, swimming the extra length for a swimmer, etc. You spoke about curiosity and the, learn and the growth mindset. And the first thing that occurred to me is that fear is a massive barrier to that. And I suspect that that's actually becoming increasingly common in the younger generations. Definitely in our generation, I would, I would expect that that's just increasing. How is fear? Were you just not scared to try new things? Or how did you have an approach to fear? How did that work? Wow, I never really thought about that. I'm, not, I'm sure there were all sorts of things that I feared. I remember my knees trembling in all sorts of domains. Um, perhaps most dramatically, I went to quite a um, celebrated uh, part-time school for acting, as in it wasn't my day school. You'd go after school. But it, at the time, it was the place to be for young actors. You'd go after school. It was in Islington. And I remember the very first time I walked in and I saw all these young actors who were well-known from the TV, had never been on TV. And uh, it was an improvisation school. So, you know, you were given a theme. You were asked to all improvise. A whole room full of kids shouting and screaming and improvising. And then you all sat down and the teacher would pick one of you to stand up and do it on your own. I remember how terrified I was the first time that happened, mainly because I was distracted by these well-known kids in the audience. You know, what, what would they think? Um, uh, was I any good, et cetera? So I, mean, I remember being terrified of that and various other instances um, where I was tongue-tied or I stood up on a stage the very first time I addressed a conference or whatever I might be. Um, so I think we all experience fear. Um, and again, if you jump to another domain, you speak to soldiers about whether they experience fear in combat, they all experience fear. So the issue is not the fear. The issue is what you do with the feeling and whether you just progress anyway. Now, thank God we're not talking about uh, war, uh, which is, of course, a whole other domain. So I'll leave that analogy to one side and just talk about work again and go, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to mess up a bit. You're going to have to go back. You're going to have to feel sorry for yourself. You have to pick yourself up and go again. But I tell you for sure, one thing that's guaranteed is you don't even try. You're never going to progress. So I, I think 
maybe that's where that determination came from. A very pushy father was probably part of it, you know, an immigrant father that came to this country with nothing, told me that all the time, and how he had to try for everything and work harder than the next person. So it was sort of almost a given that I would work harder, that I would try. So if you're hiring, you spoke about, you know, the willingness to try, the curiosity, the learning mindset. Is that what you're looking for when you've got a young person sitting? Uh, Massively, massively, massively. And and I think there's even more of a requirement now because I think we're acutely conscious in the industry in which I work that it it isn't diverse enough in, in in every definition, every sense of the word diverse. But if you want to understand whether someone has a growth mindset, which, by the way, just to go into that briefly, is not just about a willingness to learn, because that's almost self-evident. And why are you going to hire someone who's got no willingness to learn? But particularly the context in which Carol Dweck came up with growth mindset, was looking at schools that were failing for their students and schools that were succeeding. Um, uh, and there was a particular school where she did a study. Uh, and they suddenly had a, a new teacher or a new regime, a dramatic difference in results. And what was the difference? The difference was best encapsulated um, when talking about whether a student had passed or failed, they added the word yet. Y-E-T. So when telling a student that they hadn't passed yet, yeah, it made all the difference in the world between that and telling them that they'd failed. Because there's the intimation there that you're going to pass, of course. Who would expect to pass a course on their first day? No one. Who would expect to pass a course eventually? Hopefully everybody. And so they, they instilled that belief in their students that they could all achieve. And if they hadn't, you know, passed the test today, it's only because they were going to pass it tomorrow or the following week. So that sense of trying to understand people's journeys, trying to understand what they learned along the way, how they learned, how they responded to setbacks. You know, and, then, and then it's relatively easy to tell. You can tell very quickly whether someone's got that kind of mindset where they, you know, they, they might suffer knocks, but they're going to try and derive some kind of learning from it. And, and sometimes, of course, the, the, the best way of discerning that is by saying, is there anything you want to ask me? And, 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 and I think that that was true in interviews too. The, the applicant that goes, well, I've studied your website. So I, I don't, I, I'm very comprehensive and I don't think I have any questions, you think. Doesn't matter if you've got a question or not. Think of something. Say something. You know, it's an opportunity to engage. When I went for my interview at Cambridge, we were very well drilled. I had this whole book that told you this is how you go through the interview. And they always ask you at the interview, do you have any questions for us? And the book was very clear that they had finished the interview. They had no more time. So the only question they were expecting was, where's the toilet? (laughs) (laughs) I think Oxbridge is a very particular place. <laughs> so I didn't want to go necessarily so deep, so you can rein it in if you want to. One thing that in Carol Dweck's vision that or explanation, that as you put it out, she says you haven't failed, you haven't passed yet. Not only does this kind of give an exp- ex- expectation that this is something that's going to happen. It also preserves the self-confidence and the Mm. inner value and worth of the person. Again, I think this is something that perhaps increasingly, and it's pretty famous, it's out there in in many, many articles almost all the time, that increasingly our generation and going downwards, we have massive, massive self-confidence issues, massive problems with worth, an image and all sorts of things like this. 
I'm not sure which expertise I want to tap into, but I'd just like to get your thoughts on on that. And if there's anything that can be done or that you've learned that has helped with that, that you think is important to say. Uh, I'll happily offer you a view, but why, do you, why help me understand your generation a bit better. Why, why is it that you think they may have more issues with, with self-esteem than any other generation? I don't know. I think that it's something that we can see the effects of a lot. And it's easy to point and say, wow, there are all these um, problems that are coming through more acutely and that we're more aware of, but seems to be increasing in volume as well. Not just, oh, we happen to know, you know, more, but people will point to the internet and all sorts of things like that, social media, that kind of culture. Mm. It strikes me that on mass, we're just a bit more brittle. And I, and I, I don't know why. I think that there are certainly some that's, there are some challenges in the contemporary environment. And I'll start with a very, very simple one. I and mean, we're not on Zoom right now. We're using a different platform. But I spend many of my days on Zoom. And a few weeks ago, this is sort of 10 months into, you know, now 12 months on Zoom every day, someone told me how to hide self-view. I had to toggle to the top and turn my picture off. Not turn my camera off, but just turn my view of myself off. So now you can see me in this hypothetical Zoom meeting. You can see my image. You can see my video, but I can't. And I tried it, and suddenly I felt uh, that I had another kind of 10% brain capacity and realized that, think about this for a second, that when you are, uh, when is the time when most people, um, uh, I guess complete narcissists are in a different category, but most, most regular people look at themselves a lot. It's in the mirror. So it's when they're shaving, brushing their teeth, or whatever, first thing in the morning, late at night. And it's often because they're, they're, they're doing personal care, as the, as, the, as the popular phrase goes. In other words, they're studying themselves. So those are the, the instances, the few minutes a, a, a day normally that I'm used to staring myself in the mirror. And I've got this disconcerting uh, experience of staring myself in the mirror all day because my video's in front of me on the screen. The minute that I... And even if I'm trying not to look at it, which I'm trying not to now, I'm trying to look at the pair of you. you know, you're here on my screen and I'm over there. I'm trying to look at you, but I can see this figure. I can see this figure over here pointing his finger um, with his glasses on his head, and it's very distracting. So it's, it's an, it was an enormous relief for me to, uh, to learn how to turn that off, self-view. Um, and there was something there about cognitive load, staring at yourself all day, thinking about yourself all day. It's a real strain. I don't know what it is to, to live in an age or grow up in a climate where you're not only seeing yourself, you're seeing representations of yourself, you're seeing representation of your friends 24-7 on, on your devices. I think it would be unbearable. Um, and all that goes with it, which is, you know, people representing their best selves on social media and perhaps not uh, revealing their innermost secrets or the things that they find most difficult means that we're seeing an, an idealized view of other people. So it is sort of human nature amplified in many ways. And if there is a kind of brittleness, then perhaps that's where it derives from, or perhaps that's how it's exacerbated. But I think that there are some truisms. Life is life is tough. You know, if you want to put yourself out there, as we were talking about before, there are times where you'll be criticized. There are times where whether you're criticized on social media or just behind your back when you leave the conference room or the boardroom, particularly if you're ambitious. It's tough. You know, to be ambitious and, and have integrity, you know, and to, to try and hold on to both. I'd like to think it's possible, but I can remember instances where my integrity was questioned or perhaps I was, you know, I was judged as, as, as being motivated by, you know, by, by my own narrow interests. It's often difficult. 
when you're dealing with tough decisions or in, in leadership situations to try and reconcile everyone's interests equitably. I moved my screen over while you're speaking. So for the first time being on an online call, I actually cannot see myself. And, and how is that for you? My face feels more relaxed. I feel yeah. the muscles in my face have, have actually yeah. relaxed. Yeah. You look completely and, different, Jack. Almost unrecognisable, I'd say. Right. I also think this is like how you normally have a conversation with someone. You don't have a, a little picture of yourself floating in the top exactly, of the conversation. Right? Imagine. It's bizarre. Imagine having a little circular mirror. So everyone walks around with a little mirror on top of their head. Yeah. yeah. Where you can see yourself. Right. And you're constantly, how weird would that be? For, yeah. And you're, you're so right. There's so much obsession, perhaps because of self-love and that kind of thing. There's so much obsession with image and how I come across and that can only come to an extreme when I'm also having conversations with people and visually trying to manage how I'm coming across. It's unreal. It's unreal. And it's, it's a very particular phenomenon. It's a very Zoom phenomenon. I, you know, I hadn't used Zoom until a year ago. I'd used other, you know, video conferencing stuff, but not from my own home, generally in big board meetings and, and conference meetings and stuff, never with this degree of exposure. So imagine doing that for 10 to 12 hours a day, having a mirror on top of your friend's head. It's just a bizarre, bizarre. Just for the record, I, you said you weren't on Zoom. Most people weren't on Zoom. I happened to be on Zoom in Yeshiva for about two years before the pandemic. And really? somehow I missed the opportunity to realise that it might be useful to people. <laughs> I could be a very rich man. So the final area that we've got to talk about is obviously the Jewish area. I think an easy segue there is how did the JW3 thing come about what made you take it, and what are you looking to do? Uh, so it came about because in the 90s, uh, and an implausibly long time ago, uh, I spent a lot of time advising charities, professionally, um, non-Jewish charities, and when the, some of the Jewish charities found out that there was a Jewish guy and he was advising UNICEF and whatever, maybe he could spend some time with them. And I ended up doing a lot of voluntary work for lots of the Jewish charities, and it was an honour. But I have to say, by the end of that decade, I was that was enough that was enough I needed a break I needed to do something else so I told this story to a lovely woman called Debbie Klein who was uh, the chairman at launch of JW3 she works in my industry and she said I totally understand I empathize but that was 10 years ago enough's enough time to help a Jewish charity again got to tell you about JW3 and so she told me all about it and she me to the CEO and I was invited to become a trustee years later um, the esteemed Michael Goldstein stepped down as chairman to become president of the US, um, uh, and I received an invitation to step up as chair. I think that um, you know it talks to quite a lot of uh, aspects of our community and my my view of Judaism, which are important to me. Uh, there's something there about inclusiveness. Uh, there's something there about a place where every Jew is welcome. And in fact, people who are not Jewish but curious about Judaism are welcome too. The, the, the notion of a place that was outward facing that welcomed Jews of every kind, that was uh, diligent enough to ensure uh, that, um, that it observed uh, kashrut, uh, that it wasn't open on Shabbat, um, but at the same time welcoming of people who perhaps have made, moved far away from Judaism and wanted to come and relate to, to something Jewish, something cultural was desperately important um it talked to members of my own family jack you know i have members of my own close family that moved very very far away from any form of observant judaism uh, and so in a sense i kind of had them front and center uh, as i have pretty much every every part of the spectrum filled in in my own family 
So where are we going with JW3? What can we look forward to? Well, I think in the short, short term, we can look forward to the doors opening um, more fully. Uh, it stayed open for the food bank. It stayed open when it was allowed to and by government for, for, for its kindergarten. Um, but by definition, most of its activities have had to happen on Zoom. Uh, back to Zoom, which has, has many, 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 many advantages, including the fact that I hear all sorts of people bump into people all the time that go, my mother, my father, my uncle, insert family member there, couldn't live without the lecture they're doing on a Wednesday morning with whatever it might be. So lots of lots of education, some of it Jewish, some of it um, sort of more broadly cultural. I would like to ask two more questions in nine minutes, and they're perhaps the two most important questions. So we'll see how we do. You mentioned very briefly the way that it dovetailed with how you see the Judaism in your own life and in your own experience and, and what you think is important. And I wondered if you can go into that a little bit. What is important in your religion for you? I know it's a very personal question, but whatever you feel comfortable sharing, especially in the 21st century, you know, it's uh, it's something that I'm dealing with on, on a professional level. Obviously, you are too on, in, through JW3. And I think we're all perhaps grappling with on some level or other. So I wanted to You'd speak about that. Well, Jack, people write books about this kind of thing. People dedicate their lives to trying to answer this question. And I've, I've got a fraction of nine minutes. I, I, guess, minutes. I, I guess I'll just relate it. I'll relate it back to the earlier answer and go, my mother survived the Shoah and concluded that there was not uh, a, uh, a God um, because of what she had seen. And though she was in many ways, as, as, as my then rabbi told me, in her deeds, she was a very religious person. She's still alive, by the way, but she's just very advanced dementia. Um, so, you know, she dedicated her life to the service of others and to, to charity. My father, on the other hand, spent the war in South Africa as a typical kind of Lithuanian Jew, came over here in his early 20s and was a very, definitely a very sentimental Jew. Um, the notion of Judaism, you know, brought a tear to his eye. He would just cry at the very introduction of the topic because he was so proudly Jewish uh, and, you know, probably, probably if he had been brought up in this country, would have been in the United Synagogue. So two, I mean, talk about two interesting role models, you know, a parent that doesn't believe in it at all, uh, other than the kind of the, the charitable side of it, and a parent that believes in all the tradition with a massive emotional resonance around it, two very interesting models. And in the first couple of decades of my life, I ping-ponged like that between the two because I didn't have a model. I didn't have a model at home. And into my 20s, I had some revelatory moments is all I can say. Um, mainly in synagogue, actually, um, where I suddenly discovered that that, that this teenager um, who had been seeking, who'd studied philosophy for many years and been seeking the answers anywhere but Judaism, suddenly realized that actually there were quite a lot of these answers in our own tradition, if I was just prepared to get over myself and look. Um, and so I got enormous faith, uh, enormous uh, um, comfort intellectually as well as spiritually from what was available within our own tradition. And uh, I think at one point, my mother-in-law was very worried that I was going to become very, very religious. Uh, how do I know that? Because she, <laughs> she told me. <laughs> and since you know who she is, that will have an additional resonance for you because you know some of that backstory. So, And then, of course, there's the whole matter of kind of bringing up Jewish kids. I had kids. So you've got a decision to make. You're going to bring them up confused. You know, one parent who, who, who says the whole thing, it doesn't mean much. Uh, another who says it means everything and starts crying. You know, so instead of we wanted a bit more consistency here. So my kids went to Jewish schools and we kept kosher at home and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I was able to form a version uh, of 
of Jewish life as I saw it for the home that I was bringing my kids up in, the home that I was living in. And there were times when they challenged it and went, Dad, you know how it's important to keep kosher? Yes, they would say to me. Why didn't you as a child? <laughs> that make you a hypocrite? It's like, whoa, no, not a hypocrite. <laughs> I had a very different upbringing. Um, but the short answer to it, Jack, is it's deeply meaningful to me. It's part of, you know, it's part of who I am. Um, I'm a very, very, very proud Jew. I'm very proud to be, you know, one of the uh, leaders of Jewish charities uh, in, in, in the UK. Um, and, uh, and it means different things at different times. And talking about learning, which is where we started, boy, I know nothing. I have so much to learn. And I hope, actually, to spend more of my life later in my life when I'm not working so hard, um, learning even more. Thank you for sharing that with us. I would like to get to the perhaps the most important question, which is in your companies, in your personal life, we spoke a little bit about uh, your synagogue experiences, and of course in JW3, one common theme is needing to have a community or forming a community that are going to be involved with the work that you do, or accessing and developing and growing and helping a community to grow, which of course is very relevant to me personally, because that is why I'm here. And I wanted your thoughts on communal development, what's important to look for and how to do it effectively and successfully in, so, in the time that you have left. <laughs> another topic of another book. Um, uh, so I guess, I mean, there were so many aspects of that, Jack, I'm bound to say, well, maybe let's just pick one. Are you talking about what it is to build groups of, of, of common interest, of build, build communities irrespective of the subject matter? Yes. And, and, and therefore, thank you for helping me. Um, and therefore, I think I would, say, I would refer the honourable gentleman to the answer that I gave moments before about having a cause that's bigger than yourself. And relate that maybe back to hiding self view on Zoom. Uh, and saying I uh, have greatly enjoyed all the things that I've done, and I'm, you know, I'm very, very proud of some of the accomplishments that we talked about earlier. But helping others becomes more important to me as I get older. And that's partly what it is to be a parent, um, as you will discover uh, as your uh, uh, as your child grows older, that you know your your children's accomplishments in many ways are, are are even more pleasing than your own. Now that I've got you know kids who are at university age and they're sort of doing well at university and stuff. Feel even even more chuffed than perhaps when I did okay at university myself, and so that commitment to helping others, um, uh, I, I think it becomes infectious. People can tell when you have their interests at heart. People can tell when you want them to do well, um, and 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 that's what I mean about a cause bigger than yourself. People, I think, are pre uh, are kind of hardwired uh, to want to connect to something bigger than themselves. Uh, at one level, you go, well, that's you know maybe that's the function of religion. But that's what the function of groups as well. You know, if you're leading a company, part of that is painting a picture of a vision that you want people to subscribe to, that you want people to aspire to, you want people to give up where they're currently working and come and join you uh, and your cause and your mission. Um, it's got a quite a lot of similarities. It's a cause bigger than yourself. Um, I think human beings are predisposed to want to do that kind of thing. Um, and I guess it's for leaders like you to, um, to show the way challenge accepted thank you very much that was fantastic i had a great time and um that, i think that was fun thanks for inviting me thanks for listening to community with me jack cohen the producer was david cursor 
We look forward to you joining us for the next episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, comment and follow us wherever you get your podcasts.